Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Popes Against the Modern Errors on the Restoration Radio Network. I am Stephen Heiner. And on this episode, I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Tamborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, uh, recovering from a sickness that kept us from recording this last month. I'm, I'm glad that you're on the road to recovery, Your Excellency. Uh, yes, uh, you might hear some uh, raspiness or some coughing. That's uh, proof positive that I had the flu a few weeks ago and I couldn't uh, participate in the show. So unfortunately, because it was a good one, uh, there were a lot of things that Bergoglio had said that I would have loved to have commented on, but I couldn't. And well, I noted in the episode that at least at least someone from the Novus Ordo said the word heretic, so you were covered for the episode. Um, <laughs> okay. You didn't have anything to worry about there. In this episode, we are moving onward in our uh, treatment of encyclicals, which is the point of this series, Popes Against the Modern Eras. And today we're dealing with Quanta Cura, which was issued on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, 1864, December the 8th, rather. And um, on current errors is, is the popular English translation of, of, the, of the encyclical's title. And this was written by His Holiness Pope Pius IX. As I asked uh, His Excellency to do in the previous episode when we covered Merari Vos, I don't assume that our listeners are, are fully familiar with every single one of these popes. So I'm going to ask the, the bishop to give us a little bit of background on Pius IX, how he fits in within the paradigm of the pendulating papacy, and what, what, what sort of circumstances surrounded the release of this encyclical. Uh, yes, the uh, uh, since the well, even since the 18th century, uh, there was a, a, a pendulation going on. The problem in the 18th century was how do we deal with regalism? That is the interference of uh, royal courts that are infected with Jansenism and Freemasonry and, and other things hostile to the Church. How do we deal with that? Uh, do uh, do we become intransigent? Uh, do we risk persecution, or do, as I say, do we throw the chickens to alligators? In other words, do we appease them? And so that was the the conflict uh, of two parties in, in the 18th century, and one was called the Celanti, and the other was called the Politicanti, that is, those who were zealous and, and the others who were essentially politicians. That's what they were called. It, it sounds worse than it is. It was simply two ways of looking at the problem, and, and both sides thought they had the prudent way of looking at it. By the French Revolution, though, things changed a great deal. The French Revolution occurred in 1789, and uh, its principles were condemned by Pius VI. He died in 1799. Pius VII was elected in 1800. He was elected as a person to be very uh, conciliatory toward the revolutionary governments, particularly France. And <coughs> uh, so he pursued that all for, the, for 23 years. He died in 1823. Uh, for 23 years, he pursued that course. In so doing, and I, I won't go into all the details, but in so doing, he irritated the uh, Roman cardinals, that is the cardinals who were in Rome and are who are assistants to the Pope, irritated them incredibly. And so when he died, they elected someone by the name of Leo Twelfth, who was elected as someone who would react against the policies of Pius VII, the conciliatory policies toward the revolution. And Leo XII was very, very strong in condemning all of the revolutionary ideas and uh, was <coughs> not conciliatory toward revolutionary governments. Uh, he died in 1829, and there was elected Pius VIII, who switched back, and he was elected as a switchback, uh, to the policies of Pius VII, and he took his name in honor of Pius VII. Um, and <laughs> he lasted only about two years. And then Gregory the Sixteenth was elected in 1831, and he was very, very zelante, that is, uh, very anti-accommodationist, uh, uh, anti-soft with regard to um, uh, the revolutionary governments. Uh, and... Uh, 
so he always pursued a very hard line with regard to any of those things, both doctrinally and in the practical order. When he died in 1846, you had a very strong reaction against him among a lot of the higher clergy. And so it, the, there was a type of battle, you might say, between, there was always a battle, uh, in the conclave between the followers of Gregory XVI, who would have elected his Secretary of State, Lambruschini, and the, <coughs> the uh, politicanti, that is, those who favored a more uh, softer approach toward, uh, toward the revolutionary ideas and the ideas of liberalism, uh, and they were, were supporting Mastai Ferretti, uh, who was known for his liberal ideas. He was the bishop, bishop of Imola in Italy, and uh, he uh, uh, won the election in 1846, in the summer of 1846, and uh, delivered on his promise to be conciliatory toward liberal ideas. So he made a lot of reforms in the Papal States. He actually arranged that the uh, government of the Papal States be in the hands of lay people. And <coughs> he did this with the idea of conciliation, that if we give in to the demands of the liberals in Italy who want to, uh, you know, who are, uh, are, are nationalistic and who want a country, if we give in to their demands, they will be satisfied and we can move on. We won't have all of this uh, tumult in Italy uh, about uh, creating an Italian republic and all. So, well, that lasted two years until the incident of the slitting of the throat of Count Rossi in the uh, in the courtyard of the Quirinal Palace in 1848, uh, where the liberals, fearful that Pius IX's reforms would actually have the desired effect that Pius IX wanted, uh, they decided that we have to be more radical. And so they, during the, the very ceremony of inauguration of this lay um, minister uh, for the Papal States, they slit his throat in front of everybody. And then all, literally all hell broke loose in, in Rome. Garibaldi came in, uh, who was a you know Freemason and a, a radical anti-Catholic? Uh, he came in with his troops and overran Rome and spread pornography all over the city, raped nuns, and and did all sorts of hard things with sacred vessels. And uh, it, it was just a, a dirty, horrid mess. And um, Pope Pius IX fled Rome, dressed as a simple priest, and went to Gaeta, which is to the south uh, in the Kingdom of Naples. Because of that experience with the liberals, uh, Pius IX became totally transformed into something that exceeded Gregory the Sixteenth and Leo the Twelfth, all of his predecessors, with regard to uh, anti-accommodationism. Well, if something like that doesn't change you, Your Excellency, I mean, there's something wrong, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, he saw that throwing chickens to the alligators was not a good idea. And and so it it really opened his eyes as to the malice of these people who were asking for these reforms and who were uh, trying to, you know, uh, uh, manipulate him with regard to his ideas. And so he became for <laughs> that switch just, just totally shocked all of the people that, that supported him originally because he became more hardline even than Gregory the Sixteenth, and he lasted. Uh, that, that was 1848. He lasted 30 years until 1878. Uh, he has the longest reign of any pope in history, from 1846 to 1878, and his his pontificate is marked by a very strong intransigence toward liberalism and many condemnations of liberalism. And this encyclical Quanta Cura is one, of, uh, is one example of his anti-liberal attitude. The uh, occasion of it, uh, it did not have a specific occasion like Mirari Vos, where 
Pius, where Gregory the Sixteenth was responding to uh, works of Lamennais, as a specific priest in France who was making a lot of trouble. This was something on Pius the Ninth's mind, uh, the, the condemnation of modern errors. What did spark it, though, was a speech in Malines, which is uh, in Belgium, by a liberal Catholic by the name of Montalembert, French, very, very famous, and had been a follower of Lamennais, who was condemned by Gregory the Sixteenth. He was the the prime example of a liberal Catholic. By the way, Pius IX said uh, at, at one point in his in his uh, pontificate, that the liberal Catholics are the worst enemies of the Church. So Montalembert gives a speech uh, calling for a free Church in a free state. That means uh, there should be separation of Church and state. The Church should be able to do whatever it pleases. The state should be able to do whatever it pleases. And they don't have to bother with each other. That was the liberal ideal. It's actually what is it's what exists in the United States of America and always did exist. So all of those Europeans, those liberal Europeans, look to America, which is a secularized state with, with which professes no religion, as an ideal because the church can flourish in that atmosphere. And and so they thought, well, if the church can flourish in that atmosphere, it must be the best solution. So he gives this speech, and it's it's well known, and he's well known, and so it makes its rounds. Uh, in Europe, and Pius IX uses that as a, a reason or an occasion to make this encyclical quanta cura. So he is responding to some of these things that Montalembert said. When I had I had mentioned it was released on December the eighth, and I was I was unsure for a moment because I thought when when was the Immaculate Conception defined, and it was it was ten years earlier in eighteen fifty four. So this is ten years after the the dogma of the Immaculate Conception had been pronounced. Yes, he was very devoted to the Immaculate Conception. Well, I want to kind of jump right into to that was an excellent introduction, Your Excellency. I want to jump right into the encyclical, and and if we look at paragraph two. The title is Grievous Errors Flourish. And I thought to myself as I was I was preparing for this episode and, and just reviewing the encyclical again that um, things sound pretty bad in 1864. <laughs> you know, you would think that he was saying this in 2015 or something, but if you listen to these phrases, um, we condemn the chief errors of this most unhappy age. Um, they should altogether abhor and flee from the contagion of so dire a pestilence. We condemned the monstrous portents of opinion which prevail, especially in this age, bringing with them the greatest loss of souls and the detriment of civil society itself. Things sound pretty terrible in 1864. Uh, they are terrible. The whole 19th century was terrible for the Catholic Church. Uh, the there was an attempt to put Europe back together in 1814 uh, in the Congress of Vienna and make everything normal and straight again, but that didn't last. And, and even though they attempted to do that, they left out the Catholic faith from though that restoration that was done in 1814. And so the, these errors of the, of the revolution... Uh, liberalism and uh, anti-clericalism and um, interference in the church and suppression of the church were still very much alive. And so we saw uh, many cases, uh, most people are not familiar with how much the church suffered in the early part of the 19th century with the closing of churches, the persecution of the clergy, uh, imprisonment of bishops. That was in Germany. That was in Cologne. Uh, Bishop was imprisoned because he wouldn't go along with the government. Uh, persecution of Catholics in Belgium by the Protestant uh, overlords of, of Holland. Um, persecution of Catholics in Poland by the Russian Tsar. Uh, persecution of Catholics in South America by various dictators who were anti-Catholic and Freemasonic. Uh, Spain and Portugal, uh, the stripping of churches and and uh, suppression of, of religious orders and, and all sorts of persecution. I can't go into it. Uh, but there were fires 
and then Italy itself, which was on fire about nationalism and doing away with the papal states. Uh, the the whole of Europe was one big uh, one big problem, with the exception of England. But all of the continent, from Russia all the way through to Spain, there was a, a revolution against the church, and the church suffered a great deal uh, in this in this time. It, it was like everywhere there were problems and hostility. Uh, and then, as I said, most of South America was, was in revolt. Mexico was in revolt against the church. Uh, the only place that looked good, or the only places that looked good, were England, Great Britain in general, uh, and the United States of America. Uh, pope Gregory XVI had said, there is nowhere that I am more pope than in the United States of America. <laughs> Canada, Australia. Things were going well. The rest of the world was, with the exception of the mission countries, but the, <coughs> the where the church had been established for a long time, most of that world was in revolt against the church, was persecuting the church, and and things looked very dire. Whether the church would even survive all of this, all of this attitude. So that's the the background of Pius the Ninth. Uh, words here is that you know we are in a very very bad state. Uh, the the there is a revolt in Italy against him in 1870. He will lose the papal states. Uh, there is a revolt in Italy against him, and and the Carbonari and the other secret societies, the Freemasons, are spreading all of this evil doctrine among the people. Uh, the people are eating it up. Uh, there is a great loss of faith, great loss of piety. Uh, I mean that's that's what is behind all these strong words. These are these are really bad times that that are uh, ha, don't have a precedent in the history of the church. Well, and he even though as you mentioned the church is flourishing in in these countries that shall we say have no baggage. There's no there's no long history and uh, a uni, unity of, of church and state as as was in the European powers. He doesn't sign off on that being a good thing. While the church may be flourishing in this secular context, he says in the second paragraph, in fact, he, uh, he calls it, he, he cites uh, Gregory XVI of Felicitas Memory. Um, he says that this is an insanity that, quote, liberty of conscience and worship is each man's personal right, which ought to be legally proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society. And that sort of phrasing sounds very familiar to me, Your Excellency. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> they did not have cut and paste back in the Vatican two days. <laughs> but the, if they, or copy and paste, but if they had had it, they could have just easily lifted what is condemned by Pope Pius IX and by Pope Gregory XVI and put it into Vatican II because that's what it, it seems to be. If you compare the Declaration on Religious Liberty in Vatican II, it's as if they just lifted it out. Um, the, uh, it says uh, in this document, the Vatican Synod declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups or of any human power in such wise that in matters religious, no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs nor is anyone to be restrained from acting in accordance with his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others within due limits. And the, the document goes on and says that this is based on human dignity, which in turn is based on revelation. So we are to believe then that, that God has revealed that the uh, primacy of the human conscience uh, is... Uh, you know, that he has revealed this, and this is in accordance with human dignity. Uh, <clears throat> um, it says, again, a few paragraphs later, uh, uh, it is to, uh, no one is uh, to be restrained from acting in accordance with his conscience, especially in matters religious. See, this is the insanity that... To be clear, your uh, you're reading from Dignitatis Humanae? Yes. Dignitatis what, is, Humanae. Uh, what, are the, what are the paragraph numbers that you're reading from? Uh, that is in what I just read was paragraph three. The first one was from paragraph one. 
so the um, let's see uh, in paragraph three still it says the, the religious bodies rightfully claim freedom in order that they may govern themselves according to their own norms, honor the supreme being, whoever he is, in public worship, <laughs> assist their members in the practice of religious life, strengthen them by instruction, and promote institutions in which they may join together for the purpose of ordering their own lives in accordance with their religious principles. This is absolutely against the condemnations of Gregory the Sixteenth and Pope Pius the Ninth. Uh, now, Pope Pius the Ninth says in uh, this is in paragraph three of Quantacura. He says, and against the doctrine of Scripture, very important, of the Church and of the Holy Fathers. So he mentions three things there: the doctrine of the of Scripture the doctrine of the Church and of the Holy Fathers, that means the Fathers of the Church, they do not hesitate to assert that, and this is a quote, that it is the best condition of civil society in which no duty is recognized as attached to the civil power of restraining by enacted penalties offenders against the Catholic religion except so far as public peace may require. So that means that that is heretical. It is heretical to say that the best condition of civil society is one in which there is no constraint put on the practice of false religions. That's a heresy, because it's against the teaching of the Church, against the teaching of sacred scripture, and against the, the teaching of the Holy Fathers. That's extremely important. Uh, and. So what is uh, then condemned the, in this encyclical, Your Excellency, is the teaching of the Novus Ordo sect. Yes, and it, it's so clear. You see, it, Vatican II was very good at uh, making sandwiches. That is, uh, you would have two pieces of bread, that is, you know, Catholic doctrine, and then in between you have the error. So it would, on the one hand, assert Catholic doctrine. In the next paragraph it would say, however... And then it would assert something false. Uh, the idea being that Catholics could look at the first paragraph and neglect to look at the second. And the liberals could look at the second and neglect to look at the first. That's how, how it passed. That it, it served up a, a smorgasbord that had both good food and poison in it. And so the, those who were, were uh, concerned about Vatican II look only at those paragraphs in which there is Catholic doctrine asserted. Uh, and uh, so that, that's, that's how Vatican II passed and continues to pass among Novus Ordo conservatives. The uh, uh, Quantacura continues, uh, they, uh, referring to what Gregory XVI called an insanity, that liberty of conscience and worship is each man's personal right, which ought to be legally proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society, and that a right resides in the citizens to an absolute liberty, which should be, strained by, which should be restrained by no authority, whether ecclesiastical or civil, whereby they may be uh, able openly and publicly to manifest and declare any of their ideas whatever, either by word of mouth, by the press, or in any other way. Do you, I mean, it, this... And Vatican II asserts that people have this right. Um, and Pius IX continues, but while they rashly affirm this, they do not think and consider that they are preaching the liberty of perdition. He says that if human arguments are always allowed free room for discussion, there will never be wanting men who will dare to resist truth, to trust in the flowing speech of human wisdom, whereas we know from the very teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, how carefully Christian faith and wisdom should avoid this most injurious babbling. Most, I mean, most injurious babbling. I can think of at least one person who's guilty of, uh, of that most injurious babbling. <laughs> yes. um, so, I mean, this is an important document for Catholics because there is a direct contradiction, and this is even admitted by honest modernists. Uh, Yves Congar said, oh yes, uh, there's a contradiction, but uh, it's only a material one. 
<laughs> whatever that means. Uh, but other modernists, you know, your your radical modernists, yes, the, the church has evolved on this. Uh, when John Paul I was elected, one of the things he said in the first few days uh, of after his election was the church was wrong on religious liberty, meaning. The, and what he meant by it, if you look at the context, that the uh, Quantacura was wrong, that the church had it wrong in the 19th century. Mm. Uh, so they they know that it does definitely contradict. The only people that say it doesn't contradict are the Novus Ordo conservatives who have been looking at a naked emperor for 50 years and have, you know, and have been talking about his wonderful new clothes. And, and, right. The her- you know, hermeneutic they, of continuity... <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, I recently there was a priest recently, a Novus Ordo priest recently, who uh, blew me off. Uh, he said, "Please don't bother me anymore with all of your stuff." Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, I, I think state of Vacantism is absurd. And he said, "I believe in the hermeneutic of continuity," because my question to him is, "How do you justify all of these things? You have a a, a, a very clear contradiction in all of these things. How? What's your way of of clearing this contradiction up? Please tell me." And that's what he came back with. He just uh, it was like thunder and lightning. And and he said, "I believe in the hermeneutic of continuity," as if in a blind way he cannot say what that continuity is. But he, it's a blind faith that somewhere out there, there there's a, a hermeneutic of continuity. There is some solution that somebody has, like a key to a door, that will solve all the problems. Mm. And that, that was the question I put to him. If, this, if it's there, why don't we know it? Why, don't, why doesn't somebody tell us, and then we can, we can have our consciences uh, corrected and and you know everything will be all right if that if there is a hermeneutic of continuity here, tell us about it, you know and and that's what I got back. <laughs> so I think well, I hit a, a a hot button there. <laughs> that, that 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 happens, Jerry. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you you're used to that. Um, when when you think about this, we we are living in a modern society in which. The idea that you're allowed to say whatever you want is a given, and even the 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 Novus Ordo sect, which is playing the role of the Catholic Church to many people who don't know better, goes along with this idea, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. But I I have to imagine that if we lived in an earlier age and we weren't Catholic, that counterintuitively, someone who was saying that you couldn't say anything you wanted might actually be a beacon of light for people to, to move towards. They might be attracted to that and say, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Why, why, is every, why is not everything permitted? And I think that might have been something attractive because it was, it was so against the ideas of the age. And these ideas were coming to birth uh, for everybody. They were new ideas at the time. They're very old ideas for us. But at the time, this was just bursting forth, as you say, like a virus all over Europe. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> First of all, and my comment to that would be, there is no true uh, freedom of conscience and freedom of thought and freedom of speech. In every society, there is a restriction of those things. Uh, just look at what is politically correct. Uh, look at uh, politically incorrect. You get fried today, just completely burned if you say something that is politically incorrect, which would have been totally acceptable in the 1950s, say, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, all of the you know, discrimination, the so-called discrimination against uh, homosexuals, that, that was something that was, I mean, they were arrested in the 1950s. And now you can't say anything against them for fear of, of being politically incorrect. So there is always a doctrine. The highest doctrine is the doctrine of liberalism. That is that whatever society comes up with, whatever corruption should come down the line, we must assent to it and assent to people's right, uh, to everyone's right to embrace it. If you don't assent to it, assent to that, then there's something wrong with you. 
See, that, there, is a, there is always a dogma. Well, the liberalism was invented to destroy the dogma of Catholicism, but to replace it with its own dogma. So we are not totally free. Uh, we are free to deny the Catholic faith. We are free to blaspheme. We are free to say horrid things about Christ and, and the Virgin Mary. We're free to, all, to do all of those things. But we're not free to, to say many other things which would call down upon us uh, government supervision. Very mm. true. So, I mean, really, there is never uh, a time in which there is so-called freedom of, of speech and freedom of thought. Uh, the other thing is that liberalism believes in a humanity that is not infected with original sin and sees the uh, the general discussion of ideas, no matter what they are, no matter you know how depraved they are, the general discussion of ideas among human beings as something healthful, and that human beings will always go down the right road when they sit in judgment of all of these things that they read, uh, which is an absurd, absolutely absurd notion. Uh, human beings will sit in front of the television set and will parrot whatever the media tells them to think. And they'll mm. sit and read their newspapers and, and just like sheep go, go to the slaughter. Uh, the <coughs> that is the reality. Ever since the, the newspaper appeared in the 18th century and the media appeared, uh, the news media, the the you know the idea of people who are you know very intellectual sitting around discussing uh, various ideas and arriving at the truth is just an absurdity. It is the liberalism is a is a is a tool of those who wish to replace the final vestiges of Christianity with a whole new world of secularism and of moral depravity. And that movement will end up in the Antichrist. Well, and that segues very well into the next paragraph, uh, Your Excellency. The, the, the Holy Father is, is glomming on to this idea of the replacement religion. You've got to fill in all the gaps that the Church used to, to occupy. And he starts uh, the fourth paragraph, and since where religion has been removed from civil society and the doctrine and authority of divine revelation repudiated, the genuine notion itself of justice and human right is darkened and lost, and the place of true justice and legitimate right is supplied by material force. You, you, as in, you know, you, you need to have police to have a good society. Uh, mm -hmm. And he goes on, he goes on further um, uh, in this paragraph. He says... Um, they, they the, the communists and socialists, assert that, quote, domestic society or the family derives the whole principle of its existence from the civil law alone, and consequently that on civil law alone depend all rights of parents over their children, and especially that of providing for education. Yes, that is uh, very uh, typical of liberalism. When you deny God... Uh, and God's role in society, and relegate religion to merely a private affair. Then the question comes up, where does, where does a, the civil authority get its power to tell you to do something? Why does a judge have the power to send you to the electric chair? Who is he? He's just, he's just a man. He puts on his pants in the morning just like you do. But who is he? Why does he have that power? And in the liberal system, he has that power because if you don't do that, the police will come and tie you up and, and shoot you or, or do some violence to you. Whereas in the, the Catholic system, he has that power from God. And so the, the, the whole idea of civil society works on the idea that that it is a representative of God, and people are subject to the civil authority as they are to God. And just as the Pope has power from God to rule the Church, so the, the ruler of a nation, however it is ruled, uh, will <coughs> have that power from God. So you take God out of that, and you set up a, a liberal society, then you have a society based only on force and fear. 
who is holding the gun and and who has the the ability to force you to do something uh and that is something that is extremely dangerous and leads to all kinds of problems as we have seen in the world um you know our country has been relatively stable uh for various reasons that I won't get into but uh it's certainly capable of losing that stability and we have seen incredible instability owing to this liberalism throughout the world in the past 200 years revolutions you know how many rpms how many revolutions permitted permitted have there been in south america and mexico and all of these other places uh the revolutions in europe uh there is a when when you pull god out of out of society then the mob becomes god and the the general will becomes the the uh the 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 will of god so to speak the other thing about liberalism is that it will not recognize anything except the individual that is it will not recognize the family it will not recognize the church it will not actually even recognize the rights of business and other societies secular societies that there is the this the all-powerful state and then there is the individual so it reaches down into all of those societies and particularly the family and dictates to children and to wives and to to other members of the family apart from the father of the family so the all you are is a citizen with regard to the state you there is there are no other considerations and so the family becomes just a a house in which people live it it, it is not a, uh, a true domestic society in the in the uh, ideas of liberalism mm. and that, that's and, what he's uh, talking about and as you're saying that you're i think you, you know you reference south america and i think that's where our minds go when we think about these revolutions but uh obviously living here in france i i thought about two things as you said that one on the on the birth certificate uh, on the marriage certificate even though it still has places for 10 children i don't know how you have 10 children in a contracepting society <laughs> there's still 10 10 spaces to put your kids names it says parent 1 and parent 2 right and then um and then in Notre Dame where i i i i go usually at least once a week with with guests for for my business <laughs> Um, there often, I, whenever I'm in there, I try to close my eyes and remember the idea of the temple of reason. That, mm-hmm. as you say, the state becomes God, and an eight, you know, at the time a 700 year old cathedral becomes the quote unquote temple of reason. So this isn't just stuff that happens far away, even in the mm-hmm. heart of, of quote unquote civilization. Uh, the 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 revolution, the state will will take everything. And don't forget that was a prostitute, that goddess of reason that was worshipped in Notre Ugh. Dame was a prostitute who was dressed up as the Virgin Mary. Ugh. She had a blue mantle on. It was, it was, and on the altar were busts of Rousseau, Franklin, and Voltaire. All oh, the horrible people. We'll use those horrible people as a segue into... The document that accompanied this. Now, you're actually, when we think about the the syllabus of errors and quanta cura, these two things are linked together. Can you explain just to how how they're related in terms of in the encyclical and and this list? Had we ever seen anything like this before? Um, what's the in, we talked before <laughs> about universal ordinary magisterium and how the how we talked about that last episode and in the in, in the or in the zero episode as well. How does the syllabus of errors fall into this? Uh, it was a document uh, put out in order to, uh, for two reasons. One, to organize uh, the errors that have been condemned in various documents and allocutions and to remind the people of them and the bishops. Secondly, to uh, condemn them anew uh, so that the document is not merely a... Um, a list of of things you should review. It is a list of condemned doctrines and condemned ideas. Now, <coughs> so it has its own authority, and it was sent to the bishops in, in uh, together with Quanta Cura, and the bishops promulgated both of these documents uh, solemnly. Uh, it, it was uh, what you call universal ordinary magisterium. 
So uh, the uh, hence the uh, both documents uh, are infallible. If you look at the um, Quantacura, uh, he is explicit about the uh, the authority of Quantacura. He says, therefore, by our apostolic authority, we reprobate. That means we disapprove of. Uh, we proscribe and condemn all the singular and evil opinions and doctrines severally mentioned in this letter and will and command that they be thoroughly held by all the children of the Catholic Church as reprobated, proscribed, and condemned. That formula has all of the characteristics necessary for what we call a solemn magisterium. And that's in paragraph six that uh, the bishop was reading, if you're following along. Yes. That that is the language of solemn magisterium. He cites his apostolic authority, and he demands that all hold to what he has, uh, in other words, hold as condemned what he has condemned. So there is no wriggling out of this. I mean, (laughs) So that means that Vatican II teaches something that he has infallibly condemned as erroneous. Which it's so, the, it's so negative, Your Excellency. I mean, ugh, <laughs> reprobate, proscribe, <laughs> condemn. I mean, where's the positivity here? <laughs> so <laughs> Vatican II uh, cannot wriggle out of it. Uh, it, it, it there, there is this uh, glaring contradiction. And uh, and it means that it is infallibly true that these things are erroneous and that these things are, are disapproved of and prescribed and condemned. So that means Vatican II is teaching condemned doctrine, what is infallibly condemned. Because the Church is infallible not only in proposing the truth, but also in condemning those things that are opposed to the truth. Uh, as part of its a role given to it by our Lord. It has that authority uh, to not only propose, but also to condemn the opposite. Uh, and when it condemns something, that means the, the, the opposite of the condemned doctrine must be true. See, if, if I say A is condemned, then non-A must be true. That's the way it works in in sacred doctrine. Uh, So that means that it is absolutely and infallibly true that societies must profess the Catholic faith, and it is infallibly true that it is wrong that there be uh, religious liberty. See, so it's very clear. The syllabus is an infallible condemnation as well because the, uh, of the language used in presenting it to the bishops, that, uh, that these are uh, s- uh, censured and that uh, they, uh, uh, you know, they are condemned. These are condemned propositions. So it, these are also in, infallibly condemned. Now, that doesn't mean that every single one of them uh, is contrary to dogma. There are certain, there are levels of condemnation. You could condemn something as being dangerous, or you could condemn something as being, uh, as they say, uh, offensive to pious ears, or simply as erroneous. See, it doesn't mean that every single thing in it is a heresy. You can condemn things with various levels. And Pius IX says, in order to you know determine the the level of all of this you have to go back to the document which is cited. See, so he, he cites the documents from which these condemnations are taken, so you have to understand them in that sense. But the, the syllabus in and of itself has a, 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 its own condemnation of all of these things. Uh, there were some who tried to uh, soften the syllabus, saying, well, it's just sort of a reminder of things that the Pope said in the past, and uh, we, it really doesn't have its own authority, but very much it does have its own authority, and that's the way it was taken, and that's the way it was promulgated at the time. And it's very important. Well, we can get into some of these condemnations, and so I want to remind uh, our listeners that, well, first of all, I want to remind you that you're listening to Popes Against the Modern Errors, 
episode two. I'm Stephen Heiner, and you've been listening to His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn talk about uh, Quantacura, Pius IX, uh, the Pendulating Papacy, and the infallibility of both Quantacura and the syllabus. I want to remind our listeners, I'm going to be reading these propositions are condemned as false. So when I read these, I'm not approving of them, but neither is the church. These are, these are things that are, are wrong. Uh, but you'll find in them the ring of modern truths, quote unquote. So these are the things, these are the accepted notions of, uh, I don't know, polite society, maybe, Your Excellency? Politically correct society, yes. Polit- politically correct society. Okay, so number five. Divine revelation is imperfect and therefore subject to a continual and indefinite progress corresponding with the inva- advancement of human reason. Uh, this is, that means evolution of doc- dogma, which is one of the cornerstones of, of modernism. Uh, that divine revelation is continuing in each person. God reveals himself to each person, and therefore as he reveals himself, uh, uh, the new things come to light. So that's why the modernists can say, well, yes, you know, Council of Trent, that was true for its time, but now we know better, and things have progressed. And you're seeing this with Bergoglio, who is uh, uh, just becoming a very logical, and he is a very logical liberal. The liberal looks, as I said, at any situation and says we must somehow conform to it. We must conform Catholicism to the new situation, no matter how depraved it is. All right? If it exists, we must somehow make Catholicism relevant to it. See, that is the liberal mentality. It's, it's a sort of personality thing. It's so deep in them. Uh, they can never oppose a doctrine, a modern doctrine. They can never say the Church must take an intransigent uh, stance against us. They are incapable of doing that. If it's there, we must have it. We must adapt to it. And <coughs> so this, this very much is in, in accordance with that, that divine revelation is ongoing. It is the teaching of the Church that divine revelation was closed at the death of the last apostle, and that there is no new revelation. That was Pius X who uh, put that in uh, Lamentabili. Uh, and uh, so, you know, this is just typical. Evolution of dogma is is an absolute necessity for the modernists because otherwise they find themselves condemned. And everything in the church condemns what is going on today. If they cannot cite evolution of dogma as their justification, right, then, this is their way then they're in. dead. Right. There's the, so uh, they, they have to appeal to that. There's a triple whammy that we've already uh, allu- that you've already covered quite well, Your Excellency. Fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen, and those read yes. respectively. Fifteen, every man is free to embrace and profess that religion which, guided by the light of reason, he shall consider true. Mm-hmm. Sixteen, man may, in the observance of any religion whatever, find the way of eternal salvation and arrive at eternal salvation. And, well, that's easy when there's no such thing as a Catholic God. And <laughs> And yes, 17, good hope, at least, is to be entertained of the eternal salvation of all those who are not at all in the true Church of Christ. Yeah, that's ecumenism. That, that, that the, that's what ecumenism holds, is that those who are uh, outside of the Catholic Church, uh, uh, through their own fault, can uh, somehow be saved. Uh, and that uh, non-Catholic religions are means of salvation. That's Vatican II. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's interesting, Ratzinger, you know, who is venerated as the, right now, as the conservative old man uh, and, and Mr. Orthodoxy, and who probably has the hermeneutic of continuity somewhere in his head, uh, <laughs> He, he was venerated by the Novus Ordo uh, conservatives. He said in, in Vatican II that Gaudium et Spes was the anti-syllabus. Mm. That, that the, because the Gaudium et Spes, uh, we, we, I, <coughs> I talked about that in another show, is the uh, document that says we must conform the church to the modern world. Effectively, I mean that that's it goes on and on and on. Gaudium et spes, but that's the the basic idea is that the Catholic Church 
must be liberalized, must be modernized. And so uh, th- it is the counter-syllabus because the, the, the syllabus is saying the Catholic Church must dig in against all of these modern errors and oppose them with all of its might. That, that's the sense of the syllabus if you were to read the whole thing. Uh, and uh, so that was a great victory for those radical modernists, uh, of whom Ratzinger was, you know, primary example. Uh, was Gaudium et Spes at Vatican II? Yeah, I guess he's the Eminence Blanche these days uh, of the uh, <laughs> of those people. Um, twenty six and twenty seven. I want to lead back to the the historical context of the the theft of the papal states because. I don't know if it's clear enough sometimes to Catholics how important having the Papal States was, what a right that was of the papacy, and, and, and why it's important. So 26, the Church has no innate and legitimate right of acquiring and possessing property, uh, obviously, as we would see in the civil constitution and, and the disgusting laws here in France. And 27, the sacred ministers of the church and the Roman pontiff are to be absolutely excluded from every charge and dominion over temporal affairs. These are the people who want to get rid of all the Vatican embassies around the world, at least what they, what they represent, even though they didn't have uh, true, uh, true people in them. Um, can you relate this to the temporal power of the church? Why was it important and, and, and what a loss it was for us to lose the papal States? Yes. The, uh, uh, the it is very important, just as a general principle, that the church not be subject to any civil power. Uh, it wants to work with civil power, it wa- because man is composed of body and soul, and therefore works well with civil power. But it should never be subject to civil power. It is also very important for the universality of the church that it not be identified with any one nation. It is not the Greek Orthodox Church where everybody has to eat baklava after mass. <laughs> uh, it is not the Russian Orthodox Church where you you know you have borscht or something else after mass. It's not the Church of England where you know you have the the, the crumpets and whatnot. As uh, what I'm pointing out is that there is no identification with any one particular culture or nation that it is an institution which is above all of those things. It is supranational. It is not international. It is supranational. That means it's above all nations. Therefore, it is extremely important, even essential, that it have its own territory so that there is, it belongs to no part of this world. It, it has its own territory and uh, that it own its own churches and that it, 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 it have an independence in that sense of all secular powers. <coughs> and, and that's why the understanding that already Constantine gave to uh, Pope Sylvester the uh, Lateran Basilica, uh, which had belonged to the army, as a matter of fact, uh, and made a church out of it, you know, tore down what was there and made a church out of it. He gave him also the St. Peter's Basilica, and built it for him, and the the St. Paul outside the walls. Uh, he understood right away that that the church uh, had to have an independence, and and then Pepin uh, was the who was um, uh, back in the 700s, as I believe it was, donated the papal states to uh, the Pope for that very reason, for the same reason. Uh, the Pope had already been practically the emperor in the West due to the collapse of society. He had practically been the, the leader of Italy uh, during the, the just collapse of authority because the, uh, the emperor in, in Constantinople was doing nothing for the Italian situation in which the Lombards were, were running up and down the peninsula and there was just general chaos. Uh, the Pope was effectively in charge anyway. And in France and uh, at that time and other parts of Europe, the bishops, owing to the lack of civil authority, were running the country. France is a, is a country that was established by bishops, essentially. They were the authority, de facto. They, 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 they 
it just fell to them. So uh, the, uh, it was a natural thing that the Pope should receive a, a central part of Italy in which to function independently. And that was always recognized by the Catholic powers until all of the rev- ideas of the revolution started to flourish in Europe in the 18th century. Then it started to be attacked little by little. The, the, the properties of the church were taken away in the revolution. It was terrible. Uh, the, you know, in, in countries affected by the revolution, Napoleon and all. Uh, it was, uh, it's interesting to note that in the restoration that Napoleon made, he gave back all of the properties that were taken from the nobles, but he did not uh, restore the property that had been taken from the church. The church is always the loser in all of these things. There is never a restoration of property to the church. Uh, and uh, this is uh, the, uh, the animus of some liberals and, and people, you know, anti-Catholics, who really want to see the church perish from the face of the earth. Let's, let's you know, be clear about that. They want to see it die. They want to see it die either by a frontal attack, by stripping it of, of its property and, and persecuting it, or they want to see it die by transforming it into something that is unrecognizable with regard to its history, you know, in comparison with its historical state. And that's what is happening with the Novus Ordo. It, they want to see it perish from the face of the earth. And, and that's the, the struggle that we're in. And that's why I would say to Novus Ordo conservatives, wake up. I mean, this is, is no longer any any... You don't do any good by throwing the chickens to the alligators. These people are the enemies of the church. Wake up and treat them as the enemies of the church, not as misled liberals. See, that, that's that's uh, if you really look at the history of this era and the language that these popes are using. I mean, there's no other way to look at the Novus Ordo except as that. Well, just as a footnote, I, the, one of the Norbertine uh, fathers had told me when I was there that uh, the French government very generously offered Prémontré back to the Norbertines for, for about a million francs, uh, mm. very generously offering back property that they had stolen. And there was a debate, there was a real debate in the order because, of course, they wanted Prémontré back as a historical center, but purchasing it would be conceding that the revolution had the right to steal the property and sell it back to them. Ultimately, they decided against, they had the funds, but they couldn't philosophically accept purchasing stolen property back from the French government. And this is the sort of thing that, uh, that they're offering. Um, and well, this I would is, have looked at it as an extortion. In other words, yeah. I steal your car. If you want it back, you're going to have to pay me. <laughs> exactly. It's an extortion. It's like mafia. Well, and, and as you say, with the church out of the way now, uh, because she's not, given, she's not given the respected temporal power that she needs to operate freely, the, the state has to assume that. And the Holy Father points, at, points this out in 39, 40, and in a legacy form in 48. In 39, he says, and this is, con- again, condemned, the state as being the origin and source of all rights is endowed with a certain right not circumscribed by any limits, that's the modern political state as we understand it, as modern. Mm-hmm. 40, the teaching of the Catholic Church is hostile to the well-being and interest of society. So regressive. <laughs> oh, yes, that, that's very politically correct today. And, and 48, what we could consider a, uh, a secular value that, that assumes the, the level of religion for people, if you think about, well, what are the things that are important to you? Well, uh, healthcare, education, unemployment, etc. Forty-eight Catholics may approve of the system of educating youth unconnected with Catholic faith and the power of the Church, and which regards the knowledge of merely natural things and only, or at least primarily, the ends of earthly social life. And I know, Your Excellency, Catholic schooling is something you're very passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the whole purpose is to do precisely the opposite, that is to educate them in the necessity of eternal life and, and ordering your life uh, accordingly. Uh, and uh, But, you know, that's what the Novus Ordo has become, uh, ecology. You see, that's the latest. We're going to get an encyclical on ecology and environment. Uh, when, uh, you know, the Easter and Christmas messages are peace on earth and uh, you know, it, it, the the Muslims should be nice to each other, or they shouldn't do this or that. 
it's it's uh, as if anyone's paying attention to him, it, as if anyone cared about what he's saying, as if any intervention of of these Novus Ordo uh, so-called popes uh, make it makes any difference. You know, they speak as if they have some authority. <laughs> Nobody cares about what they say, and <clears throat> but they say these things because their religion is secularistic. Their religion is helping man be a better person and helping the earth to be a better place to live in. That's what that the Catholicism in the Novus Ordo has become. Uh, it, it you know there's an occasional sprinkling of of Christianity in it. Uh, and and that, that's the whole idea of, of the Novus Ordo, is that you can have your secularism, you can have your naturalism, but, you know, a little, you know, sprinkles on the top of Christianity, that this is really the, the full message of Christianity, is to make the world a better place to live in. And that's what uh, Pius IX is referring to. Well, there are, there are 80 condemned propositions, and it, as always, Popes Against the Modern Eras is not meant to be a complete and, and deep explication of, the, uh, of each encyclical we cover, and today obviously we covered an encyclical and the Syllabus of Eras, but uh, we'll end with, with two, two more propositions, 77 <coughs> and 80, Your Excellency. 77, in the present day, it is no longer expedient that the Catholic religion should be held as the only religion of the state to the exclusion of all other forms of worship. And 80, the Roman pontiff can and ought to reconcile himself and come to terms with progress, liberalism, and modern civilization. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly, that's Berg, number 80 is, is the Bergoglio uh, condemnation. That's on, his, that's on his coat of arms, I suppose. <laughs> yes, progress, liberalism, and modern civilization. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so yes, uh, and I would uh, recommend to anybody who's a student of the period and wants to know more about uh, the, our present problem, you have to study this stuff from the 19th century. Uh, this, this, this problem in the Church has very, very deep roots, and, and it's, it's almost impossible to read too much about it. Well, I suppose that's where I would, would end, Your Excellency. We're at the end of our episode today. Is there anything further, particularly about about Pius IX? Because after this, uh, we're, we're on to uh, Deuternum Illud as our next encyclical. Anything else about Pius IX or about uh, this encyclical that you'd like to comment on? No, I think we've covered it. <laughs> Pius IX is, is certainly a... A major figure, uh, I think the major figure in the battle against modernism is Pius X. He was the great one. Uh, and uh, But uh, Pius IX certainly is, is one of the major, major figures in the, in the battle against modernism. And that's what this is. This is all a form of modernism. Modernism is to conform the Catholic Church to the modern world. And the modern world is characterized by liberalism. And and so all of this is really the same stuff. And uh, if you want to understand what happened in 1958, you have to understand all of these things. Would you say this is sort of the end of of, of all pretense? You, you see, you have the, the the as you say, the slitting of the throat, the theft of the papal states, uh, the the virtual prisoner of the Vatican. At, at this point, it's all out war. There's no more hiding and pretending. Yes, he he understood that the program of accommodating liberals was very imprudent, and he made a big switch in 1848. And what Novus Ordo conservatives are doing is accommodating liberals, and they should stop. And I, I think that's that's a good place for us to stop. Thank you for battling through uh, through the remnants of your. Your, uh, your cold, and um, look forward to seeing you next month as we continue on uh, in our encyclicals. And uh, get better before then, please. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Your Excellency. <laughs> 
We want to remind our listeners that uh, Root of the Rot is a production of the Restoration Radio, uh, Root of the Rot, uh, Popes Against the Modern Era. We were talking about, His, Excell- His Excellency had mentioned, you know, there's deep roots here, and I'm thinking, yes, this is all historically related, and we're thinking about our, our historical show, but the Popes Against the Modern Errors is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Uh, permission can usually be easily obtained by writing to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.com. Org. If you have any questions for His Excellency or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at uh, modernerrors at truerestoration.org. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. Amen.